there aren't very many people that have been adopted from Japan, and it's really amazing to be adopted by my, my, my family's Caucasian and be able to grow up with my culture and the language and, you know, the roots. And so we experienced every holiday and any, everything with Japanese food and as a part of our every, everyday life. So even just from the, the Japanese kare to, you know, umeboshi and, uh, yuzu, miso. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a huge salty tooth. I mean, I love making pastry and I know I'm good at it, but if I had an option, I want something salty. So like that, like the umami flavors. So I draw a lot on, you know, my experiences and my memories of being in Japan and the food that we eat and figuring out like when I'm making something, what feelings do I want to invoke? What flavors and like what textures? And a lot of the time I'll go back to Japanese food because they have such a unique way of imparting saltiness without using salt and using, you know, different you know, just different ingredients that we use in the United States. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 77 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest today is pastry chef Erin Carnegie-Lux from Brooklyn, New York. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversation with award-winning culinary leaders from various backgrounds and cultures who share their personal experiences of where and why the food culture is, is where it is today. Erin has a really interesting background. She grew up in Japan, Philadelphia, and Oregon. She learned to love baking with her dad and grandmother, rooted in Pennsylvania Dutch traditions. She shares her experiences in various working environments, from teaching baking for 10 years in various cooking schools, like the Cordon Bleu or the French Culinary Institute, being the chef at Reynard at the Witt Hotel in Brooklyn, to working in catering at Danny's Mayor's Union Square Evans. Hi, Chef. How are you? Good. Thank you. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, Flavors Unknown. Finally, I'm here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, we have been talking about this, you know, since, I don't know, I don't even remember when we started to talk about it, like maybe a year and something ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a minute. <laughs> it's been a minute, yes. So you have a very interesting uh, background. So you grew up in Japan, you lived as well in Philadelphia, in Oregon, and then you have as well an Amish Pennsylvania Dutch heritage. Can you tell us a little bit about all these roots that you have? It's a very interesting story. So my mother was actually born in Tokyo, Japan, to missionaries, to Mennonite missionaries that were and were stationed there for many, many years. So my mom was born in Tokyo and grew up in Japan. And she eventually came to the States for college, got her degrees in East Asian languages and teaching specifically, and then met my my dad. And they decided to also become Mennonite missionaries and move to Japan. All while doing so, they uh, adopted me from a adoption center in Fukuoka, Japan, which is a very, or Kyushu was where the adoption center is, which is a very, very rare thing. So that was in itself pretty amazing and special. So I was adopted 
uh, at the age of one, and we lived in Tokyo. And my family has a lot of adopting roots. My aunt was left on my grandparents' doorstep when they my when my grandparents lived in Korea, <laughs> and then my uncle. I don't know, maybe he was left too, but in Japan, so he's adopted from Japan. So we have a lot of adoptive Asians in our family, which is amazing. So my grandparents, they're Mennonite, but my grandfather actually initially grew up Amish. And in the Pennsylvania um, Amish area, just uh, south of Harris, or just north of Harrisburg and uh, south of State College in the valley there called the Big Valley. And I grew up spending my summers you know, being shipped up to Amishville is what my sister and I called it. And we would be able to go hang out and we'd have our Mennonite devotions in the morning and run through cornfields into the evenings. And we have a lot of second cousins, lots of second cousins. And some one of our second cousins lived next door to my grandparents and I have a dairy farm. farm. So I grew up walking with my grandmother to the dairy farm to go get the cream for the coffee. Okay. So you were during the year then in Japan and then in the summer? Then in, in yeah, we moved back to the States. My mom, I got a teaching job at, or she was finishing, she got a teaching job at UPenn and my dad was finishing up his master's. So they, we moved back to the States. How old were you at that time? I was a little, I was, it wasn't long after. So probably still run one. And then, well, my mom was teaching every summer alternating, we would end up, there was about three months out of the year, we'd go back to Japan with her students and my sister and my dad and I would all go and we would be living there and my sister and I would be in school. So in Tokyo then? Uh, it no? changed in different places. Okay. Sometimes it's Tokyo, sometimes it was Hokkaido, sometimes it was another, what was Gifu was another area we were in. And it just, it depended on where the sister cities were that she was working with. Okay. So, and then Oregon? Yeah. So then my my mom got a job at the University of Oregon. So we jumped in our red little caravan and drove across the United States and moved to Oregon. And it was the year that Penn State played the U of O Ducks in college football. And I just remember rolling in with Pennsylvania plates and like getting booed and like, yeah, like, you know, it's like I'm in middle school and, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're from Pennsylvania. And I mean, the U of O Ducks is such a huge, huge thing in Eugene, Oregon. So, yeah, that was very memorable. <laughs> wow. So let's go back to uh, Japan for um, a moment. So what food influence do you remember uh, getting, you know, when you were there? Oh, there's so many memories. Uh, the Mennonite Center, which is where we lived when I was adopted and which is where we stayed often when we go back to Tokyo. You know, I think I was probably like five or six. I remember going with my dad. There was a ramen cart that would be pushed by, by hand, um, and would stop right outside of the, the, you know, where we were staying in the house. And he would have his, he would sing his call and my dad and I would go down. And it was a standing booth only, so a standing a bar only. And you would get your ramen, and you stand there, and my dad would have to help hold me so I could eat the ramen. And it was like usually in the evening, and it was usually pretty cold at that point. And so just like that smell of like the hot boiled ramen, and you're standing outside freezing, and you're just slurping it up and eating it. It was one of my oh, so I love that. And then uh, my favorite, I think my favorite food was tempura udon. And I loved the shrimp tempura. It was my favorite thing ever. And so whenever we'd go out, it was pretty much guaranteed I'd order that. 
And then I would take my shrimp tempura off my udon and set it off to the side because I didn't want it to get soggy. I'd eat all my noodles and my broth and then come back and eat that last and everybody would try to eat it because they thought I didn't want it. And then I had all the steam buns. I just remember like it when we were up in Hokkaido and, you know, just walking around and then a lot of street vendors. And you just smell like the yakitori, so like the grilled chicken, like, oh, just that smell of it over like the roasted coals. And then you get like the steam buns. And you had a melon bun as well. Oh, melon buns. My yeah. sister loved melon bun so much. I was more of a salty kid. So I okay. liked the umeboshi. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was, when we were younger, they had just come out with this new product called karikari umeboshi. So it was like these crunchy salted plums that you could get in little individual packets. And mm-hmm. I would eat them like candy. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I, you know, discovered this uh, world of uh, uh, street food and, um, and I would say comfort food in Japan that I didn't know at all. I went there with my younger son in the fall of 2019 and just before the pandemic. And uh, yeah, we discovered this. Uh, this it's, oh, it's amazing because this, that's an entire world beside, you know, even ramen or sushi. In fact, not a lot of people eat sushi on a daily basis over there. Um, but the comfort food and street food is amazing. And 7-Eleven. And 7-Eleven. And Boston's. Yes. <laughs> uh, we, we, um, we stopped at, uh, you know, at 7-Eleven, got those, I don't remember. The, yeah, exactly. The triangle the, with the, uh, the seaweed and then, you know, some different feelings. So um, that's, it's comfort food, something you, know, you can eat as well, like handheld snack. You know, it's, it's really cool. It was, we grew up on having those for picnics and sent to school and it, oh, so good. <laughs> so, if there's anything from Japan that, um, you know, that the influence that you had that you are bringing back, you know, you have brought back into like as a source of inspiration for, for your pastries? Definitely. Like, I feel very lucky that, there, again, there aren't very many people that have been adopted from Japan. And it's really amazing to be adopted by my, my, my family's Caucasian and be able to grow up with my culture and the language and, you know, the roots. And so... We experienced, you know, every holiday and any everything with Japanese food and, you know, as a part of our every, everyday life. So even just from the, the Japanese kare to, you know, umeboshi and uh, yuzu, miso. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a huge salty tooth. I mean, I love making pastry and I know I'm good at it. But if I had an option, I want something salty. So like that, like the umami flavors. But so I draw a lot on you know, my experiences and my memories of being in Japan and the food that we eat and figuring out like when I'm making something, what feelings do I want to invoke, what flavors and like what textures. And a lot of the time I'll go back to Japanese food because they have such a unique way of imparting saltiness without using salt and using, you know, different you know, just different ingredients that we use in the United States, you know. So can it, you give us some examples? Maybe yeah, again, on... like miso. Miso is yeah. one of those things that it's not just, you know, white or red. It's like there are so many different variations of miso and that you can use different types of beans. You don't just have to use soybeans and the types of fermentation and the depth. And it's just really amazing to be able to taste your way through miso and to realize that there are so many different kinds. So I really like to utilize that. So like a white miso could be really great for you know, pairing with, I think it'd be great with a caramel where, you know, it's a little bit more light, it's delicate, it can highlight caramel notes, but not overtake. And then like a red miso or something that's really deep like that, for me, I think is really fun to pair with, like, again, black olives, and then we think like coconut, like chocolate, really dark notes. So, mm, Okay. 
but then you've got like all the different citrus, you know, the Japanese love Western sweets and Western profiles, but they always, it, for me, I, I always found that it was always done in a, a little bit lighter hand. So not quite as sweet. Everything it tends to be a little bit more like fluffy, which I like, and just more aerated and light. I feel like a lot of the desserts I create are in that air where it is a little bit less sweet. You're playing on all the different senses and flavor profiles. And it, it should, in my opinion, I try to make things that eat as if they're a lighter. Yeah. And I remember, you know, seeing one of your posts recently on Instagram, having like, um, I think it was a, ch a chocolate, I don't know if it was a cake or it was a cremo, but uh, you were using yuzu, you know, uh, in combination with, uh, with it. So, so, uh, so yeah, that was pretty cool. And um, I think that we are going to, um, you know, to have a, a tasting, you know, of some of the things you just made, you know, with, um, you know, some Japanese influence. So, Chef, what are we having here? So, here we have a chocolate sake kasu decadence, also known as pave in my world. But it's like a very rich, dense custard. It is set with eggs, but you would never know. And it should eat very nice and light. Uh, we have a whipped cream on top that is dusted with a freeze-dried cacao pulp and then some freeze-dried plums. Okay. So, where is the sake the product from issue from the fermentation of the second in the cake. It's in the cake, yes. It's in the cake. Okay. So let's, I'm going to, okay, I tried to make the perfect bite here between like the, the pavé. And then because in my world, it's pavé as well, my French world. <laughs> and then uh, the cream and the freeze-dried uh, plum. That's true, it's not a heavy. Hmm. So that's interesting. I tasted the, um, how you call the product from the, the sake? The, the kasu. The kasu. So this little, I would describe it like winey fermented, you know, notes. You can taste it slightly in, uh, in the chocolate layer. And it gives uh, a little lift, you know, in terms of the, of the taste. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it should be light. You don't, I don't want it to overpower. It's, mm -hmm. just, it's, it's just complimentary. And I really like the freeze-dried plums are so tart and they, they taste like a red fruit in a really yep. tart, bright way, but it has that, that crispiness that's just Absolutely. Fun. Yeah. And it's not, um, and it's, it has this like, um, you know, lingering acidity, sourness, you know, in, uh, in the mouth after. It helps cut And some of it the... cups like some of the, the fatty, you know, sorry, fatty is maybe not the right that's term, fat. but of the, you know, of the chocolate uh, pavé. Thank you, chef. It's fantastic. You're welcome. Thank you. So your baking and cooking so are rooted in the Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, tradition. So what dishes did you grow up with? So yeah, so that's my that that's the whole other side. So my dad also grew up in the Pennsylvania Dutch world, but not necessarily in the Amish version of it. So I grew up eating a lot of it was weird. My grandparents still cooked Japanese food and cooked a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch food. And my grandfather still had a lot of his Amish, you know, favorite foods too. That's interesting. It's, it's very, yeah. <laughs> um, so with my dad, you know, his, one of his favorite things was uh, or a couple of them. Well, apple dumplings, shoe fly pie. He had a huge, huge sweet tooth. And then we always did pork and sauerkraut. And I think that's more of a, like outside of Philadelphia, ish uh like you know pennsylvania dutch thing where you know with my grandparents we had like you know fried mush 
sounds terrible, but it's just basically, it's like polenta. It's cornmeal. That's, we eat it for breakfast as like a put, like a porridge. And then, um, whatever was left over, it would get placed into a pan and set and then cut and then fried the next morning for breakfast. Cause so you get like double duty out of it, you know, and I love scrapple. Like I know scrapple, I, yeah. love, I grew up with scrapple and everyone's like, Ew, you know what? That's parts, but it's like, yeah, you're utilizing the whole animal. It gets got a lot of cornmeal in it. Like it's delicious. It's salty, <laughs> salty pig parts. It's so good. You know, and then like uh, another one of my favorite things is dried sweet corn, copes specifically. But it's just like, again, it, a lot of these flavors for me are a lot of the salty sweet, like the cope sweet corn, the way that we made it, it was still very savory, but there was the brown sugar in there. Like the Amish love, the Amish and the Mennonites love their sweets. They have huge sweet tooths. You know, you always got to get that in there, but then it has a good saltiness to it to balance it out. Okay. And then, so I, I guess you learn to bake with what, your grandmother? Or? I learned to bake with my, my dad, Your really, dad? and okay. then his mom. Okay. It was mainly pie, which was my favorite. I loved doing that. And it was like the first thing that I was ever allowed to actually do on my own. My dad trusted me enough to give me the rolling pin. I think I was like three or four. And he just he was like, okay, whatever, you do it. And like, I don't know if he thought he could fix it if I messed it up, or <laughs> but he let me do it. And so that built a lot of really great confidence. And when, as I got older and I got to spend more time with my other grandparents in the Amish area, you know, being able to go and spend time with my Amish relatives and learning how they actually, you know, grind all of their wheat by hand to make it into flour. And, you know, what do you do when there isn't electricity? How do you produce really amazing breads and, you know, all this amazing food? And so we had several opportunities to go and get, have really amazing meals cooked for us in the home my grandfather was born in. And it's still a Amish family that doesn't use electricity and does everything by hand. So it was really fun to be able to be there as a kid and like watch the process of everything being made. And, you know, a lot of things are preserved. A lot of things are canned. A lot of things are, are done in methods that are purposeful for full utilization and for, you know, having it later on. So it was really, for me, I thought that was a really great experience. And I bring a lot of those techniques and flavor profiles into what I do because I, why we why waste something that's so good or how can we how can we make this life of this thing that's so great go longer so. okay so you do a lot of uh preserve and a lot of uh, fermentation yeah i try to you try to <laughs> <laughs> some example for us i've been playing around with a lot of sake leaves so this is the yeast that's left over from making sake it's mm -hmm. very active and i've been trying is it with koji or uh similar to koji so but mix. but different okay i'll let you taste some too it's much more light and it tastes it's like it's, it's kind of like a gummy Sake, because it tastes very much like sake. It's just the rice that's been pressed and fermented. Um, so I've been trying to use that and trying to make bread out of that. Oh, wow. So like, you know, just playing with fermentation, fermented things, fermenting other, fermenting of other things. And then, you know, if it's like a direct pickle or if it's more of um, an actual full lacto fermentation cycle, it just kind of depends on <laughs> what it is. But yeah, I love playing with it. You have done the... Uh, fermentation with fruit as well? Or? Definitely, yeah. It's very fun. We, I used to, when I used to make yogurt all the time at the White Hotel, yeah. we always had all this, you know, yogurt whey left over. And I used to try and make like raspberry sodas um, from uh, just taking raspberries, crushing them up, and then adding the whey to it and letting it lacto ferment and putting it into like bottles. And as soon as you open it, it's carbonated and it's, it's fermented, but it's delicious and amazing. You're talking about uh, your position on the, at the wet hotel. So what compelled you to become a pastry chef? 
Great question. <laughs> uh, that could go so many different directions. No. Okay. Uh, Give me like the romantic version. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was sitting in anthropology class at the university and realized I hated it and would rather be at work. And I don't know many people that would be, you know, going in school for, for their, whatever their major is, like really excited to be there and being like, I'd rather be at work. Well, yeah, I wanted to be at work. So I dropped out of like yet another college education, <laughs> decided to fully pursue pastry and culinary arts. And your parents supported at the time? <laughs> Reluctantly. Reluctantly. <laughs> said, oh, she's trained something new. <laughs> yeah, often. So, but, you know, I, I stuck with it and I, I did finally get a degree and, uh, and I ended up teaching at the school I got my degree from. So it was a pretty like, I was like, look, I am actually good at this and it's, it's what I enjoy doing. And so, you know, it was really fun going and doing all these different, being in all these areas of pastry. I really loved teaching. So I had been in the industry for about 10 years prior to going to school. So when I got to school, I was kind of bored. I did the culinary arts program and then I went into the pastry program and I was kind of bored because I, I had been in the industry doing this and it was, maybe it was like the easy way to get a degree too, because I already knew how to do all this. But, you know, I started uh, TAing on the side and then I eventually was a, offered a teaching position even before I had graduated. And Where was of, that? Where? Uh, that was at Western Culinary Institute. And a lot of people are like, you know, aren't, don't people who teach mean they can't do or like, you know, it's usually like, don't, wouldn't you want to do this at the end of your career? But for me, I really found it valuable because I had been in the industry for so long already. I found that I was able to really hone my skills and understand the whys as to how things work and how ingredient functions work together. And, and I saw at pretty much every single variable of things that could go wrong with almost every product you can think of. <laughs> so figuring out then how to problem solve it was awesome. So when I went back out into the industry, I get bored and I taught everything in, in pastry school and I taught culinary parts too. But, you know, I didn't want to just go back into a bakery and, you know, make viennoiserie or I didn't want to just go make cakes or, or you know, make bread all day. Like I love all that stuff, but I, I don't like to do it 100% of the time and only that. So <laughs> meeting uh, Andrew Tarlow and being a, and being having the opportunity to be a part of the White Hotel and that opening and Renard was truly like eye-opening and the best, like the best thing I could possibly think of. I always thought like, ooh, I'd never want to work in a hotel because they compromise on the food because of the volume that they have to do and it's all production and like they're not how can they make something look so nice when it's for so many people and it's just pumping it out. And they're having to use like, you know, a lot of commodity products and like it just it was not glamorous or anything. I really the creativity wasn't there and it was just I couldn't I could never wrap my head around it. And then Andrew Tarlow, you know, one of like the godfathers of like farm to table, Brooklyn, at least amazing at being able to work with the products that, I, that I'm really happy about and that I get ex excited about and I get inspired by and being given the creativity and the freedom to, to, to go forth with that attitude. And, you know, that there, there is a draw for it. There are people that actually want to eat that way for their wedding or for, you know, a corporate event or for breakfast in the hotel. Yeah. And that's where we met the first time. Oh, yeah. When right. we got the, uh, the, you got the rising star that's from right. Star Chef, you know, that mm -hmm. year. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was fantastic. I mean, some of the, the dishes, uh, you know, were outstanding. And I continue to go there because there's a lot of events, obviously, in Brooklyn. And um, I always took like the croissant and, and my espresso. Good, <laughs> you know, good. I'm good. Arena. <laughs> <laughs> very good. I'm very proud of this. 
you are very famous for cakes, correct? You have done, how many, how many times have you done cakes in your life? A lot of cakes. And especially the multi-layered cakes, correct? Correct. So <laughs> what's the maximum of layers do you have done on a cake? Antoinette Bruno actually commented on this recently. I did a cake for a, what was it? I think it was for a Star Chef's Congress opening night, maybe, or what, something like that. And I think it was 37 layers. 37. Wow. Okay. But for the people that are listening is that I don't know if the 37 layers was the case, but usually you have a different flavor, correct? Yep. In each layer. <laughs> so either in the cake or in the filling, the cream, correct layer. So how do you create this like this idea and combine you know those flavors that it really gives like an outstanding experience you know to the consumers at the end i mean you kind of think of it as like composing a song you know i know what my flavors are and being able to you know find the right harmonies what things are going to flow well with each other and what flavors maybe shouldn't go so close to each other but the progression makes it all work together really well so it's, and then also thinking about structure, right? If it's 37 layers of cake and filling, at some point you need to make sure that you're not putting something that's super like a sponge cake on the bottom, which is going to get crushed and by like, a, you know, a butter cake on the top. So, you know, a lot of it's just thinking structurally. I don't want to put a mousse towards the bottom. If I'm wanting all my layers to show too, if this is a, which is what this cake was, it was like, an, it was a naked cake. So every, every single layer was showing. And I wouldn't want to put a mousse on the bottom because it would get pressed out and the whole thing would fall over or it would slide and fall over. <laughs> That's happened to me before. But so, yeah, it's just kind of like looking at all the different flavors that you have and how do you want it to go together? And then thinking about then cool next structure, how which cake needs to be what, um, you know, towards the top, it had uh, meringue layers. So that needed to go towards the top so that it stayed crispy and didn't fall apart. And I'm guessing that you have as well contrast in terms of like taste, correct? Like. Like, otherwise, not to be overly too sweet when someone is eating it. So you need to have some sourness, acidity. I, I try to balance my cakes, no matter whether it's all the way throughout or just within the layers, to be, to, to be fairly balanced. So I try to, you know, bring that little bit of sweetness, a little bit of saltiness, a little bit of sour and texture within, you know, you know, two layers or three layers. And then hopefully throughout the whole thing, it eats the same way. Do you do uh, still a lot of uh, cakes? Today? I still do a lot of cakes. Yes. <laughs> As you mentioned before, so you were teaching, then you were working at the the white, uh, you know, hotel. So the when you were teaching, you were talking about the, that's the the former French Culinary Institute, correct? I taught for several places. So I taught for the Western Culinary Institute in Portland, Oregon, that was a Le Cordon Bleu, and then I taught for California Culinary Academy in San Francisco, that was also a Le Cordon Bleu, and then moved to New York City and taught for the French Culinary. Okay, so you you work for a lot of different environments. So you taught for many years, about 10 years, you know, with different culinary schools. And uh, you were the pastry chef at the, the White Hotel. And then recently, uh, you work at a catering company, uh, the Union Square, you know, Evan, uh, from uh, Danny Meyers. So what, was it a desire on your end to test like different style? Was a way for you to understand as well what would be like the best fit you know for you you know or it's just like because it was different stage in your personal life all of the above no 
It was several things. Like going from the White Hotel, White Hotel Reynard, like I loved what I was doing there and I thought it was amazing. But I wanted, I had built that place from the ground up in terms of the pastry department. Yes. And, you know, I, I felt like I, I really did my best with that challenge. This was the opening, right? Yep. I was the opening pastry yeah. chef. And I really felt like I did the, a, a really good job of setting up the, the department and whoever was going to be taking over. And, you know, I wanted a new challenge. And so, you know, what's the next thing from, you know, Andrew Tarlow on a little bit larger scale, Danny Meyer. <laughs> so, um, and catering. And catering. Yeah. It just, it made sense. Like, you know, it's events and catering. It, again, another thing I never wanted to get into, which is why I started thinking about it, but catering, you know, you think catering and events, it's like, and wedding food, you know, it's the same thing with like hotels, right? It's like so many people. Compromise you know, like, on ingredients. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. and there's and no quality. We to hear a touch. lot of things from a lot of like restaurant chefs, you know, looking down to, you know, into catering and uh, saying that it's not the same quality. And, you know, I'm sure you heard it all. 100%. Well, and um, being on a panel, I got to meet Ted Lee and he had written Hotbox and we had so many wonderful conversations about that. That was a really wonderful experience because I got to meet him. Great, uh, great book. And fantastic Yes, book. absolutely. But I totally agree. Like, I'm, I feel like I, because I was working for Danny Meyer and because of the attention to detail of the excellence that they, we always want to be, you know, serving and performing and hospitality and that it extended to you know, just not the not just the food, but to the purveyors and who are picking and choosing and who we're serving, right? So, like all those things made just made me so happy, and and that I had the cr creative freedom to get to figure out how to make something so amazing and beautiful to put on a plate for four thousand people, or you know, for Delta Airlines first class, or you know, a twelve person little dinner party. So it just kind of seemed like the appropriate next move, <laughs> and also, you know, I always found that like yeah. I poo-pooed per se the catering world and catering chefs because I didn't a understand it and didn't realize, and, and maybe at the time there weren't there weren't the right people involved to take it to that next level, and that you can have fine dining at such a large level. And so I really loved that, and I liked that challenge. So how do you approach like the the, the creation of a of a dessert when you move from the with hotel to the catering? with uh, Denny Myers, because, you know, it's like the scale. I understand it's already at the hotel. It's a lot of people, but now we are talking about Evan with 4,000 people. You have some really great systems. I mean, it's all about organization and communication and systems. So funny enough, my husband <laughs> is the, you know, it was, I don't know what his, I don't remember what his title was then, but he's the director of, he was the director of procurement. Now I don't know what his title is, but the, the relationships he has and made with farmers and different producers of all the things that we use was incredibly important. So without, you know, him being able to talk, you know, the real thing about money, but being able to give guarantees, right? It's like, cool. Like if we can have this set up, like I want to buy all your, you know, whatever wheat berries. How do we do that? How is it something that like, can you store that? Do we need to keep it on site? Like, how can we make this work? So it's beneficial for you. And we can have what we need and it's beneficial for us and not to run out. So having, you know, when you get to that such a large uh, state, you really have to have the right key people in place and that you can, uh, you know, really have confidence that they're going to follow through and do what they do best so that everybody else can do what they do best. And where you... Working with local farmers? A lot with local farmers, and some were on the larger scale too, but predominantly local. What did you discover like uh, in, around, you know, New York States and 
I mean, so many cool things. <laughs> I think one of my f- most favorite experiences was Five Acre Farms Dairy. Their their kefir, um, so like the, you know the the probiotic fermented dairy. It, it was like it's full fat, it's creamy, it's delicious. It doesn't taste chalky. It was like the best kefir I've ever had in my life, and I use that in as many things as I possibly could. And their yogurt even was just like fantastic. That's my breakfast. You say kefir, I say kefir. That's funny, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I use a lot of like um, red fruits and just pour, you oh, know, kefir so on good. top of it and that's it. So yeah, I, I love it. And then now you are back to uh, teaching. Teaching, yes. You're excited about I it? I am. I forgot how much joy it brings me to, to give people the tools to do what I love doing. You know, it's one thing. It's amazing. one of the best things, at least as a... A chef like mentor is like to see your your you know your your old staff people that worked for you uh succeed and do really amazing things but it's also it's it's really great to see that on you know the more sh- more immediate gratification <laughs> when you're working with students because especially in this the format that I'm working now it you know many of these people have you know full-time jobs and families and are running around and they're you know they're really trying to figure out how to fit in school and so it's not like the, the the restaurant industry where everybody is kind of cutthroat in a way and that it's kind of always a competition to, I don't know how many chefs I've worked for that were like, oh no, you can't have my recipes. You know, it's everything is secretive and you, you have to But don't you think it. it's kind of like the, the old world old, yeah. a little bit? That yeah, now it's mentality. much more about like collaboration? It It is. We're getting better. Getting, getting better. better. Not completely, step by step. <laughs> yep. One thing at a time. <laughs> But I really, working with students that, you know, like a lot of people think students, they think like, you know, 18-year-olds. But no, these are people of all walks of life doing so many different things and, and being able to encourage them in just the sense that, like, if you got it right the first time, why would you be here? The greatest thing is to make mistakes. Make them now so I can tell you every single reason that that could have happened and every single way that you could prevent it or fix it. Like, it's, it's what I'm good at. <laughs> Okay, let's talk a little bit about the, the creative process. So what are your sources of inspiration? My number one source of inspiration is usually from an ingredient or a product. I love being tasked with a new, again, new ingredient or new product and seeing what I can do with it. It's just something that's really exciting for me. And I, I love, even when it comes down to a, maybe a simple thing like vanilla. but you know, it's something that it's, you know, I've always used it. It's like everybody knows vanilla, vanilla's vanilla. But, you know, being able to, to be given something and really trying to de- take it down and deduce it to like what its essence is and what it's really about is something that I really enjoy. So anytime I get the opportunity to work with something new or, you know, be able to experience something, something I've never tasted before or a combination from there, my brain goes crazy. <laughs> okay. So that's the first step. So, but when, you have this product in front of you and you have selected and you said, I'm going to focus on this. Where does your mind go? Typically goes with, you know, how am I going to highlight this? Or like, in what way do I want to highlight this, this product or ingredient? You know, is it going to be the number one thing on the plate? Or is it, is this reminding me of something that it would go really well with? Or, you know, when I'm smelling it, is it something that, you know, oh, this will be really good hot or be really good as like ice cream? And, you know, it just kind of, it depends on what it is. And, I, I don't, it just kind of comes to me. <laughs> okay. No, no, but uh, I was curious to understand that you said that you want to uh, 
to really create something where um, the product speaks, you know, uh, for itself and is celebrated. I was just thinking maybe you know that already that you want to make an ice cream or you maybe you want a cake or you want nope, to make it like me. a vineyard or whatever. <laughs> so the product tells you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the product speaks. This they speak to you. Okay. Unless right. sometimes like it should be an ice cream. Okay. Easy. Okay. <laughs> So you have been known to be the MacGyver of uh, of pastry. It's so true. why why this nickname? My old sous chef, I think it was my old sous chef Michelle or Desiree, one of the two of them or both of them came up with this. But it's um, again, I, I have a wealth of useless knowledge that is very useful in certain situations, and being able, I retain a lot of random information, and whether it's pastry related or not. Uh, and, you know, just common sense and just thinking when I'm in a, when I'm in a bind or, and I'm in an emergency situation, I think very well on my feet. So when it's like, oh my gosh, I have a cake, a wedding cake that's going out in two hours. And I totally forgot that there is a garnish that's supposed to be inside every single layer, but that tier is done and ready to be stacked. What do I do? So then it's like, well, the only thing I can do is to cut it like I would if it was just a you know, a regular cake that I needed to cut to get my layers out of. So I cut everything down, added my layer and put it all back together again. <laughs> okay. But being able to be, you know, a good problem solver and creative. And I, I don't, it's not just drawing from pastry. It's drawing from all aspects of experiences that I've had to go through. <laughs> so you're known as well to bend the pastry rules, correct? So how, how do you do that? Because pastry or baking, it's a lot about techniques and scientific approach and chemistry, you know, of ingredients. So how, how can you bend the rule and how far can you go? Well, that's why I love pastry is because once you know all the foundations, you can mess with it and tweak things to make things go in a new way or a way that you really wished it went. For me, it's just, again, drawing from my experiences and, you know, I want this to be like this. So, for instance, when I was at uh, Reynard, you know, we try not to use any additives, right? So it was like a stretch to get like gelatin <laughs> for panna cotta. So things like that, anything, any sort of like emulsifier, it was not something I was allowed to bring in. Fair enough. Because of that, the limitations have really caused me and like ice cream stabilizers and things wasn't allowed to use it, which is fine. But those restrictions really gave me the opportunity to get creative and to think and really draw back on my experiences teaching and my true understanding of, you know, ingredient functions and, and how to make things, manipulate things to become what I want it to, even though I may not have the easy way out or have what I had used that was, you know, a ready to go like item. And, you know, often it would took a lot of experimenting, <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of the fun for me is it's, it's almost there. We're just, or let's see how this holds up. And so it's, it's, it's just you using different techniques from maybe other areas of pastry or culinary and and applying them in a way that maybe hasn't been done before. I remember when I was competing in the Valrhona C3 competition, I, I made a mousse and the mousse was, I tr was trying to make it billowy and like fluffy, but like have a little bit of structure to it, similar to how you would use a mousse in a ISI canister. But I didn't have an ISI canister and I wasn't I wasn't necessarily told I couldn't use one at the Renard, but you know, it was one of those things like maybe don't bring that out. So trying to create a recipe that would act in that way and hold in that way, but not something I had to make literally every single a la minute for each dish was a challenge and fun. And I remember when I was uh, making my mousse 
on my prep day for the competition, I had one of the judges come by and ask me what I was doing. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting way to make a moose. <laughs> like I've never, not seen it done like that before. <laughs> it's like, oh. Okay. You have an uh, ingredients uh, obsession lately? Hmm. It had been for so long something that was really challenging to get a hold of. Sake leaves are the leftover pressings. It's, it's the leaves like at the bottom of your wine bottle of your naturally fermented wine. It's the leftover yeast from making sake. And there are so it's such a cool flavor profile. And, you know, I got to experience it in Japan when I was a kid. And then, you know, we had a few guest chefs that would have it and I got to taste it. But it's a really hard thing to find just in general. Well, a friend of mine is good friends with the sake maker, a, a local sake ma- maker, which we walked to, and he will give you a bag of sake leaves if you buy a bottle of sake. He'll give you two bags, whatever, little boxes, like whatever you want. You use or you you end up with a lot of sake leaves when you make sake. It is, you know, it's the waste. Uh, so he was very happy that I was excited about using it. And so now I have it at the ready. And it's been, it's just such a creamy, like a tangy, like subtly tangy flavor. And it's, it has its own bit of umami to it. And it's just been so much fun. It, it's great in cheesecake. It's great with dairy. It's great in cheesecake. It's great in ice cream. But it's also great in things like chocolate. And, you know, I'm trying to leaven bread with it. <laughs> so I would like to finish the our discussion with a series of rapid fire questions. So you and I are going um, doing a, a tasting tour in Brooklyn. And I'm just curious, where would you take me to five spots that, uh, you know, you love? Or it could be somewhere else, you know, in in New York, if you don't want to only focus on Brooklyn. Industry would be one. It's my buddies that make fantastic pizza. It's And it's all naturally leavened and it's gorgeous and it's it's so good. Winsome Bakery would probably be number two because it's the unique flavors or things that I love and the textures are really great. But savory wise, I love their rice rolls. (laughs) <laughs> they're so good and I used to live by there and I would eat one every day if I still lived there <laughs> I'm glad I moved um, uh, let's see here in the city but speaking of I, the f- like first restaurant I've eaten at since this lockdown lo- lockdown and pandemic was the Manresa pop-up at uh, Intersect by Lexus and David Kinch is one of my one of my idols and I totally like fangirled him because he was there for this uh, you know friends and family dinner but Every single dish was fantastic, but specifically the pastry, the desserts, because by, you know, being a pastry chef, you you do judge and look at things, right? So the visuals of all of them were really beautiful, but to me just looked very classic. It was such a surprise when I went in and got to eat it because the classic visual was not how it tasted. They were so perfectly balanced, um, not overly sweet, really great notes of sour and tangy and whatever else was going on. But yeah, textures were amazing. But that was a really great experience. So another one would be patisserie tomoko, and it's just it's a it's a lovely Japanese bakery dessert spot. It's like a dessert bar in the evenings, but you can go by and they have really great bakery items, and it's just it's fun Japanese flavors played into you know whatever desserts are going on and or baked goods. It's just fun and delicious. Manju, Ma, yep. Oh yeah, I love manju. <laughs> so I love manju. Manju is so good. <laughs> I discovered when warm. And, and I yeah, and I discovered fried version oh, of it yeah. too. Oh man, I didn't know that. So <laughs> yeah, and that, fried onigiri. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I, I love the one uh, in Tokyo. I love the one with green tea, uh, the manju green tea, and uh, uh, with um, cherry blossom. 
Oh, that yeah. one's really good. That sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Mm. Pie, uh, strawberry rhubarb. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Double crust. Double crust? Like on the top? And yep. Then, yeah, yep, yep. No okay. crumb, double crust. Okay. Mm. I, well, I, like, I like pie dough a lot. Three uh, cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? Mm. The first one would probably be Harold McGee on food and cooking just because of ingredient functions and techniques and it's just amazing another one that was a what else do i have up there that's one of my favorites of it honestly my pennsylvania dutch uh my amish heritage cookbook that's you know a lot of family recipes and uh recipes from mennonites from all over it could be a pastry book too huh? uh yeah what's my favorite i mean anything julia child yeah those those are the ones that really really Sing. Okay. So where you were at the Wheat Hotel over there, what's um, what were your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? Oh, man. You should ask my old sous chefs about that. <laughs> <laughs> when my doors would get left open, because that would mean heat and flies and, yeah, no. I like my doors shut because I had my own AC unit in there. So temperature controlled. When, what other would be a pet peeve? Oh, man. If people try to throw away my hoarding of like stuff, <laughs> uh, I have a, a, I get, I don't like to waste things. And so I'll, I'll take something like, oh, I'm going to dehydrate it later. Or I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to turn it into a puree and I'll, I'll make, I'll dehydrate all this stuff and I'll have all this stuff. But then I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily have enough to use it or I, it was too precious. I didn't want to use it up yet. <laughs> so I would just have like, it was like walls and walls of like dried things and, you know, whatever pickled things and candied things that I was just excited about, but didn't have quite you the opportunity the only to one, use them. You were the only one excited about them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Last question. Beside the classics in terms of condiments, spices, and sauces, which one do you like to have at hand at home? Just like condiment or sauce? Yeah. Condiment, sauces. Sriracha. Sriracha. Yeah. I was expecting something more from you. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, no. I mean, I guess... But also, like, I really love dashi shoyu. Dashi shoyu. Okay. Okay. Chef. Or fish sauce. There's another oh, one. Fish I can't sauce. really live without that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I discovered uh, fish sauce uh, when I interviewed Chris Shefford in, um, you know, in Houston. He is a passionate guy about, uh, you know, fish sauce. So now I have my funky fish sauce as well, you know, <laughs> at, uh, in my kitchen. Chef, thank you so much, uh, you know, for your time. I really appreciate it. Really, um, you know, enjoy having you in uh, on the show. Thank you. It was great to finally be here. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode with the MacGyver of pastry, Chef Erin Kennegilux. If you did, please share it with a friend or a colleague, and follow us on Instagram at Flavors Unknown. I know I say it every episode, but it will help spreading the news. And I always welcome new listeners to the show. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Next week, my guest will be Chef Eric Ramirez from Llama Inn and Llamasan in New York City. We obviously will talk about Peruvian cuisine. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.